listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. This is Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich. In 1918, the literary critic Van White Brooks wrote about the idea of creating a usable past, a version of history somewhere between the simplifications and caricatures of lowbrow mass culture and the dry, desiccated posturing of highbrow academic historians. In 1995, Jim Cullen searched for the existence of that same middle ground in his book, The Civil War in Popular Culture, A Reusable Past. Did he find it? Does it? Can it exist today? We'll discuss these and other questions with our guest, Jim Cullen, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office in the Brewster Building of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, using the university's phone and computer and airspace, but not speaking on behalf of the university, nor do they speak for me, nor does the guest speak for anyone but himself, and so on. All lawyers take note of these standard disclaimers. Uh, thanks to all listeners also for your patience over the last uh, few weeks as we deal with the new website of uh, our our new corporate overlords at uh, Motivox. Apparently, uh, uh, somehow they have not yet found out of my existence. I've discovered there are some mass emails to all the show hosts that I'm not getting. Uh, uh, perhaps my spam filter is just catching them, that's all. I don't know. But... Uh, as long as they remain unaware of my existence, uh, on the one hand, that limits my ability to modify the website and put our guest's name up each week, which is unfortunate, but it also uh, keeps them from bothering me. So uh, so we'll try to maintain that status at least for a while. Possibly I'm looking to finding a, uh, uh, a separate site where I can post, as I formerly did, the descriptions of the shows and the uh, photographs of the uh, the books or the authors uh, or, or guests themselves, uh, which you could refer to then uh, while still coming to this site to actually listen to the show. But that's all in the future. There are other projects in the meantime, most notably of which this being spring of 2017.
seven as, as we speak today um, the restarting of uh, Greenville's local adult soccer league which uh, after coaching my various daughters I thought yeah I should play again and it's an adult league but it turns out the word adult has many uh, connotations in American culture uh, an adult bookstore is not a store full of books by Kierkegaard and uh, Nietzsche that only adults can understand it, it's something quite different and an adult soccer league is not full of uh, 45-plus-year-olds like myself. It's full of 21-year-olds. And, boy, did I get my butt kicked on the first two nights at adult soccer. I'm old enough to be the uh, parent or even grandparent of some of the people playing. Uh, so if I'm not here next week, uh, uh, you'll know why. It's, it's adult soccer time, and, and they're, they're, they're just killing me. But enough... Uh, aimless chatter. It's time to get to our guest today, the author of The Civil War in Popular Culture, A Reusable Past, and also a more recent uh, collection of pieces used to help teach the Civil War. Uh, our guest is Jim Cullen. Uh, Jim, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Uh, may I call you Jim? You and I have not actually met. Sure. Uh, and please call me Jerry. Uh, Jim, I, I looked at your uh, looking at the book flap uh, from your, your your first book and other things. I see that you lectured at Harvard at one point in the past. That's right. Uh, when were you there? I was there between uh, 1994 and 2001, and I had a dual appointment. I was uh, I was teaching freshman composition in the expository writing program, and I was also a lecturer in the university's uh, history and literature concentration. Uh, I, I left there in '93, so we just didn't overlap. Uh huh. Um, but since this this gig here, this show is not uh, a paying proposition. But one of the perks that I get is reminding the listeners that I went to Harvard at every possible opportunity. I see. So, is that where you got your your PhD, or where you went undergraduate? Uh, PhD. Uh huh. Uh, so this is my opportunity to do that today. Uh-huh. Uh, so I appreciate you you giving me that 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 opening. Uh-huh. Um, but so you lectured, you, you were in, in the history and literature, this the American yeah, Studies program, or no? I, no, actually, my, my 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 doctorate is in American Studies from from Brown. But after okay. getting my uh, uh, degree, I went to Harvard and taught there for a bunch of years, and um, and then you know I'm in a two career academic couple, and I uh, had a bunch of kids, and um, when the opportunity came to get a, a more sustainable job down here in New York at, a, at a, a private high school, I decided to, to make the jump, and I've been here for about six years now. So uh, tell me where you're teaching now. What's the name of the school? The name of the school is the Ethical Culture Fieldston School, or Fieldston for short. It's, um, it's uh, pre-K through 12, and uh, there's a bunch of different campuses. One, one is uh, on the uh, Central Park West in Manhattan, and then I do most of my work up in Riverdale and in, 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 the, in the northern rim of New York City, where I where I teach most of my classes. And it's a you know it's a um, it's a pretty uh, competitive, pretty diverse uh, uh, independent school. We we send a lot of our students to places like Brown and Harvard. Um, and uh, you know I, I do teach a, a Civil War class there. Just finished, in fact. My my wife teaches at an or is librarian actually at an independent school, and uh, I've I've taught at one sporadically over the years it's a very interesting uh, environment you, you get you get some of the advantages uh, of the especially at a select school the, the intellectual advantages of the college uh, but the students are not yet 
all of them at least not quite as cynical and uh, jaded as, as the college students. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. that's certainly been my experience, and there's a particular pleasure, unexpected really in my case, of of uh, introducing people to things. I mean, I thought I would like the job to the degree to which it resembled college teaching, and in a lot of ways I like it uh, and to the degree to which it doesn't. So, uh, and you mentioned also, you're, you said your wife is also a historian? She is. In fact, she uh, is my co-editor on the uh, collection of documents you refer to called the Civil War Era. She teaches... Uh, at Sarah Lawrence College, um, which is uh, just north of New York City as well, in Bronxville, New York. Now, I, I think of how the, the, the glazed look that comes over uh, my wife's eyes when I start in on uh, what a good lecture I gave on the Compromise of 1850 today, for example. Uh, and I just wonder, uh, I, I mean this with no prejudice, but how do you guys stand it, uh, two historians in the same house? Well, I think our children are the ones that are really at risk. (laughs) I have a a son who's entering ninth grade and who has, I think, uh, managed to uh, focus his interests on math and science to a pretty pretty great degree. That might be one sort of coping mechanism. Um, But, uh, yeah, there's a real uh, hazard, as as I guess you know, of having a a couple of educators in the house. That's My my older daughter just finished ninth grade, and she's also more math and science oriented. Uh, There may be something to it then. Mm-hmm. That people do this. Well, let, let's um, talk, if we can, about this uh, about your first book, if you don't mind, uh, sure. Civil War and Popular Culture, which I recall reading when it came out and being really fascinated by it, by, by this attempt to look at how uh, the Civil War is remembered in America today, not through, uh, not just through books, but through through various ways that people uh, assimilate memories of the past through movies and uh, reenacting and music and and so on. But let me start with the first question, which was, uh, I recall also, not long after reading it, reading a review, and I don't remember where it was, and I hope this is not a painful memory, uh, but it must have been in in Journal of American History or uh, AHR or something like that, that was extremely negative. Mm-hmm. By uh, an older practitioner of the craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you rec- do you know what I'm talking about? I, well, I know that I wasn't particularly kindly viewed in the in AHR, the American Historical Review, as I recall. Um, and, and I think the historian there was a more uh, uh, slightly more um, senior uh, colleague. Well, the, the gist of the review said, "Well, this isn't history as I know it. This is mm-hmm. just sort of this young guy talking about stuff that he's interested in." And if this is history, I'm you know, I, I'm not with it anymore. And as I, when I read the review, I thought, well, this is like the very defini- definition of, of, pardon the language, the old fart uh, talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I thought the book was, was great. And I just wondered, did you get a lot of criticism from the older generation of historians for this book? Well, um I, I can't say I, I was particularly abused uh, about it. Um, uh, you, you, I mean, I think by the time you know, I was doing this kind of work, popular culture as a field of inquiry had been relatively well established, although here I think the fact that my degree is in American studies, American civilization, rather than straight history, um, is a factor. And that's something I've become more and more conscious of it, uh, as time goes by. Actually, you know, right now I'm in the middle of uh, trying to get started on a book about how to write history, and uh, I put together a proposal, and 
you know, been working with a publisher, and the publisher sent it out to a bunch of reviewers. And uh, there, I think I was getting some of those some of those reactions. I, I think that you know, because I do have an interdisciplinary background, and I do have sort of a literature training, and I do sort of think about texts, um, including historical texts, contextually. Um, I may be a little less grounded in the kind of primary source work uh, that that most historians are, or in a funny kind of way, my secondary sources become primary sources. So, for example, when I'm looking at Carl, Carl Sandburg's biography of Abraham Lincoln, I'm much more interested in what it says about Carl Sandburg in the 1930s than what it is that he's saying about Abraham Lincoln. And, of course, most historians don't much like what Carl Sandburg was saying about Abraham Lincoln. Um, the, the book is considered dated and, and uh, was never, you know, of course, he's a poet, not a historian. So I think some, that's where some of the, um, the skepticism or, or um, feeling that this is not everybody's cup of tea might come from. Well, let's look at that example then. Uh, your, Abraham Lincoln, your, your chapter in your book on, on the Sandberg biography, mm-hmm. um, as you point out, you don't treat it as a source about Lincoln, but rather it is a primary source about the 1930s, about the era in which it was written, about Carl Sandburg. Uh, and it, it seems to me you interpret it as, as really almost as much about Franklin Roosevelt as about Carl, as about Abraham Lincoln. Right. I mean, um, Sandberg was a was a big fan of the New Deal. Was a big fan of Franklin Roosevelt. And there's a real correspondence even between the two, in which you know Sandberg tells Roosevelt that he's trying to sort of reforge Lincoln in Roosevelt's image. And you know, there's a kind of what would Abraham do quality to uh, uh, to to um, Sandberg's uh, take on Lincoln and the way in which he sort of refashions him into a Democrat uh, in the 19 in the 1930s. Uh, you know, especially as World as World War II approaches. Um, and, I, and I'm interested in sort of juxtaposing that particular Lincoln with the leading academic uh, historian of, of, of the 30s, James uh, James Randall, who uh, worked out of the University of Illinois, and, and whose Lincoln was a much more circumspect, much more conservative, dare I say, even much more southern um, or pro-southern uh, figure. So there, you know, there is a way in which we sort of, and Lincoln is probably the best example of this. We we sort of remake uh, historical figures in our own image. And while I think most historians sort of believe that it's at least possible to try uh, to escape that, and I think it is in many ways possible to escape that, um, uh, I think that our fingerprints, our you know, our historical fingerprints, the the, the contextual fingerprints, are never too hard to find. Well, with, with the the Lincoln. Lincoln Roosevelt example, Arthur Schlesinger certainly did the same thing to Andrew Jackson in terms of casting him as as FDR in the age right. of Jackson. Right, and I think that you know Schlesinger was probably mindful of that earlier generational uh, example, and, and I think of course some folks have taken Schlesinger to, to task for that. I've viewed him as an excessively partisan historian. Um, and you know, I, I do have some. I mean, as time has gone on, I you know, I, I have some sort of sympathy for, for that. I mean, um, you know, the past may keep changing, as I say in my book. It doesn't necessarily change all that much. Um, and uh, uh, I, it's a little. I mean, it's hard to say uh, uh, whether Schlesinger was right or, or, or how how far one can go in in refashioning an Andrew Jackson or an Abraham Lincoln. Well, certainly it doesn't stop people from trying, in, in the case of Lincoln at least. That uh, I, I'm finishing a book right now that will hopefully come out next year that deals with questions people ask about Lincoln. And 
uh, a typical question is which party would he belong to today? Right. And just anecdotally, the historians divide pretty much one to one based on which party they belong to today, mm-hmm. uh, as which way they see Lincoln going. Very few yeah, of them think- say, "Well, Lincoln would certainly be the opposite of me." Uh, well, yeah, I think that that's right. Although I think there are ways in which um, our Lincolns reflect a sort of a trans. Partisan categories. I mean, I, I just published a book called Imperfect Presidents, which looked at um, mistakes presidents have made and how they redeem themselves. And I do have a chapter on Lincoln, and here I'm interested in Lincoln in his own right as opposed to someone else's interpretation of him. And you know, in, in, in that um, uh, chapter, I talk about how uh, about Lincoln's religious background and how he was raised in a, in a sort of a Calvinistic Baptist family, which he sort of rejected in his youth. And uh, and then gradually sort of rediscovered his um, his Puritan heritage in some important sense. Now, you know, I'm one of a number of people who have seen that vein in Lincoln's thinking. That's something that really I think probably was first traced with great skill by Gary Wills in his book uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg. Um, that's a way in which you know we live in an age well of sort of evangelical religion you know being very powerful force in, in in American politics and in American life and it really doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican you can't help but be aware of that uh, and grapple with that and so even Democrats and Republicans I think are you know have to be aware of that interpretation and and work with that and you know I, I certainly don't consider myself an evangelical Christian I don't think Abraham Lincoln considered himself an evangelical Christian he ever joined a church and whatnot and yet you know religiosity is something that uh, was a factor in his time and is a factor in our time and and the very fact that it is such a factor in our time filters into our take on him well that, that's it, it was really absent from the take on Lincoln until the mid 90s mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think you're onto something there that that with the Perhaps with the growth in in religious rhetoric and the the power of the Christian right in American politics, historians are more inclined to see religion or, or take Abraham Lincoln's religion seriously, even if they don't particularly subscribe to the same views or any religious views. Uh, they're just more aware of it now. Right, and I think that you know there, there's a sense in which, for me, that culture, you know, or cultural trends or cultural um, phenomena are sort of like. Uh, Meteorological, they're like the weather. I mean, you, 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 everybody's aware of them. Some people are happy about the fact that it's cool and and and, and uh, are comfortable, and other folks need to add another layer or to complain about it. But but everybody's sort of dealing with it. And I think of, you know, um, th- this uh, religious vein in our culture now as something uh, that's sort of on the on the radar, as it were, in in that way. And I think that one could speak of. Uh, you know the, the the New Deal in a similar spirit, or the you know the, the or the twenties, you know, which is a shorthand for a whole bunch of other things in that spirit, and so on. I think that that's a very valid observation. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We will come back in just a minute. We're talking today with Jim Cullen, author of The Civil War and Popular Culture. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. When we return, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and the Civil War. Well, actually, no sex or drugs, but rock and roll and the Civil War. When we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jim Cullen, author of The Civil War in Popular Culture, A Reusable Past, uh, a book that looks at how Americans have remembered the Civil War through means uh, other than uh, the traditional uh, academic or literary texts uh, through movies, through uh, novels, through fiction, through reenactments. Uh, and it, it, in our first segment, we talked a little bit uh, specifically about his chapter on Abraham Lincoln, uh, Carl Sandburg's biography of Abraham Lincoln specifically, uh, which historians have not uh, generally relied upon very much as a historical document, of Lincoln's life, but which uh, proves uh, a very useful window into the era in which it was written, the 1930s, the era of the New Deal, and uh, uh, Sandberg's views on government and Franklin Roosevelt as transmuted through his picture of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Other forms of of cultural transmission uh, that that appear in this book uh, include the, uh, the occasional appearance of the Civil War in popular music. And, uh, Jim, I'd, I'd like to ask you about that. Uh, I, I very much enjoyed that chapter in the book. There's not a whole lot of uh, of rock music that touches on the Civil War. Uh, but what's there is certainly interesting. Uh, why do you suppose there isn't very much of it? Well, it's, um, I mean, uh, and pop music, I think, almost by nature is, uh, is, is ephemeral and is, you know, focused on uh, the here and now and, and, uh, and, and simultaneously with more sort of timeless issues like romance and, and uh, um, uh, sexuality and, and uh, celebration of, of, uh, of, of uh, immediate experience. Um, so I think that, that's sort of part of it. Um, Part of it for a lot of American history is that is that folks wanted to avoid subjects that were controversial. Um, you know, in the 19 in the 1950s and 60s, for example, the the, the uh, centenary of the Civil War. Um, you know, talking about it was was viewed as divisive, especially when the with the civil rights movement starting, starting to bubble up. It was like talking about religion at uh, at Thanksgiving or something. Um, and so I think that's sort of part of why um, it didn't come up. Um, well, but uh, let me. Push on that point, though. Uh, rock music in the 60s didn't shy away from controversial topics. 
That, that's true, and I think that, you know, I mean, rock, I think, has perhaps dealt with it more directly than than a lot of other uh, uh, musical genres of the last century. I mean, I don't, I don't th- think of, uh, I, I can't off the top of my head think of any jazz treatments of the Civil War, per se, um, uh, for example. Or, or in Broadway, I guess, there's been probably some examples of it, but I would think that they'd be sort of sanitized. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a vein uh, of, uh, of tradition in rock and roll that, that does sort of grapple with this. Um, um, I even think of someone like uh, Elvis Presley, whose song Aura Lee, well, actually, uh, Love Me Tender, was based on a sort of a Civil War song. So there's an awareness of sort of the heritage there. Um, although I don't think you really, it's until the 60s, until I mean, the, the bands, The Night They Drove All Dixie Down, is the first example of a, of a pop music song, I think, that really grapples with the legacy of the Civil War in any in any direct or sustained way. And, and that song was uh, uh, sort of uh, ruined for the general public by the mistranslation of lyrics in the Joan Baez version. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I found interesting, uh, my, my my take on it was a lot like yours, I think. Although I, you know, I got some, uh, you know, one reader in particular, when I was in the manuscript stage, who pointed out to me that that I was being a little bit, um, uh, I was missing something here, and and that and this this writer, actually George Lipset, a very fine cultural historian, was sort of pointing out that that. Um, there was a way in which uh, Baez's version of the night they drove Dixie down was a kind of Vietnamization of of, uh, of the song and, and an attempt to sort of translate the experience of loss, um, uh, you know, through a kind of countercultural um, lens. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how persuasive that is, but it's sort of an interesting take on things. And I do think that the specter of Vietnam did loom large over. Uh, many treatments of the of the war in in, in the Civil War. I mean, in in, in American popular music. I, do you? I can't recall specifically if your chapter addresses Neil Young's song "Powderfinger." Yeah, I think I mentioned it passingly. You know, that that to me is one of the greatest um, war songs in 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 American the American musical canon of the last. Well, actually, it's Canadian, I guess so we would say, but in the or, or you know whatever the Anglo-American. Broadly construed musical canon. You know, Young doesn't doesn't um, posit. It's not. There's no direct reference to the American Civil War in the song. Although, certainly the setting and the way the character talks, you know, could very much have could it could easily come out of Missouri. You know, and and uh, that never occurred to me that it could be anything other than the Civil War. But now that you say that, I realize there are no direct textual clues to that. Right, and I think that was by intention on, on his part, but but the, but the vernacular is very much a, yeah. you know, an American, and, a, and even a 19th century American sort of language that he uses in the song. But but there is also, I, I brought that up because of the Vietnamization, uh, certainly the character in that song is just uh, uh, a single innocent victim of the process of war uh, with a capital W. It, it's not... Uh, uh, he, he's not even a, a moral agent, really. Uh, it seems to me he's just right, doing... right. I mean, you know, he he he. Dis, I mean, the, the war co- the war comes to that particular character. I mean, exactly. He looks, up, he looks up river and sees it coming, but he's he embraces it. He runs into it. I mean, literally runs into it. True. He, you know, picks up his uh, rifle and goes, and and then of course is almost immediately killed. Um, and I, I think that that you know again generationally, I think that that's a stand-in for a lot of Americans who you know went to war really not knowing what they're getting getting themselves into 
um, uh, who, simply, who simply reacted instinctively, reflexively, and paid a terrible price. And some folks would say that that's exactly what's going on right now, that, 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 uh, that, that, the, call, that the call came, people responded, and they found themselves in a quagmire and, uh, um, you know, and are basically paying the price for uh, their, their ignorance in some sense and that they didn't really know what they were getting themselves into uh, or actually being exploited or manipulated in, uh, you know, in terms of their, their, their loyalty or their love of their, of, of their country. You know, really haunting them, and of course that character in that song is haunted. I mean, he comes back from the grave and warns uh, warns us, the listeners, not not to make the same mistake that he did. Are Are there any songs since uh, this book was written in the the early '90s that you are familiar with uh, Civil War songs that have added to this body of work? You know, I, I've thought about this, and I'm, I'm sure there are some, but I, I really can't think of, of, of any. Um, I, I think partly that's because uh, hip-hop has displaced rock and roll as the dominant musical idiom. And, and I don't think that, that the, the American Civil War has quite the central place in the urban African-American imagination in quite the same way that it did for the, the generation of, of uh, men and women who came of age in the, in the 1960s. That's my best guess at trying to explain that paucity. I mean, partly this may reflect the fact that I've gone on and there's stuff happening that I'm, that I'm not aware of, but uh, I don't think there's anything that's sort of risen to the level of popular consciousness of, of, uh, you know, of songs you know, like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down or even you know, Leonard Skinner's Sweet Home Alabama, which all my high school students know. Um, it's very much part of their uh, musical heritage. It's on all their iPods. Um, and, and you know, I, I often learn a lot of what is going on from them, and they haven't certainly brought anything to my attention that's comparable. Well, now that that song also crosses over into country music, mm-hmm. which, which I, you could argue, along with hip hop, might be the other major right. cultural stream today. And um, not many academics are, are in touch with it in a visceral sense. Uh, uh, with what's happening in, in either country music or hip hop, it seems. Well, that's that's true. I think it's more likely that you'd hear stuff in country music. I mean, I you know I do, and there has been some. I mean, I, you know, the Hank Williams Jr. song at the South would have won. We would have had it made. Um, Char- the Charlie Daniels Band, um, the South's going to do it again. These are from the these are examples from the 1970s. Again, I think that country music, um, um, a lot of country music since the 1980s has really gotten. Uh, much more commercial and much more sort of present-minded. Um, I, I think some country music fans would argue that it sort of lost touch with its with its with its roots. Um, you know, the, the Dixie Chicks on their uh, uh, last album, not their current one, you know, did have the song about a, a boy who goes off to war and and and, and dies. And again, the, the, that's not. I think that's meant to be Vietnam. But these are not issues that are really taken up so much um, uh, in, in in recent decades. I would say. Well, I think that's unlike movies, you know, where I think that the war has been, you know, foregrounded much more. There have been a, there have been a number of interesting Civil War movies in the last decade. Well, you, you you devoted a chapter to the movie Glory, and mm-hmm. we can talk about that. But but what about what about more recent ones that 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 bring well, the war to the public eye? Yeah, I mean, you know, the most obvious example is Cole Mountain, you know, which of course is based on the Charles Fraser novel, uh, and is a, and I think an important document in its own right. Um, I actually am quite um, arrested by um, Ang Lee's Ride with the Devil, a movie that sort of came and went uh, in 1999 without, a, without really being noticed. I think the reason for that 
is that the star was Jewel, who I think most people thought of as a kind of laughable uh, leading lady. And she actually didn't acquit herself too badly, but but uh, in fact, even reasonably well. But 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 that I think is a very very interesting um, uh, document of the Civil War and sort of reflects where I think the the culture has gone um, in the last decade, even since the time I wrote the book. I mean, Glory, you know, is very much about trying to find a, a just cause, a meaningful war. I think movies like Ride with the Devil and Cold Mountain really question the notion of. Uh, of, of right and wrong and Confederate Union and, and even North and South. I mean, those categories sort of get scrambled in these movies. You can't really tell uh, who the good guy is or which side he's on. You have uh, you have black Confederates and, and you know you have um, you have uh, Confederate deserters. Um, uh, I think that they sort of um, are very much interested in that gray zone, um, that moral gray zone, and that ideological gray zone. Um, that sometimes characterizes war. So, no, that, that's a contrast, though, with a reason many people become interested in history. Right, uh, right. W- and which I, is, and, you know, I, 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 I think that 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 lack of moral or ideological clarity is, is something that's a little bit difficult to grapple with. On the other hand, I think that a lot of people are coming to it instinctively. I had a I had a student, a very good student who um, was interested in um, the way the Civil War is portrayed uh, on YouTube. And she um, uh, watched dozens of, uh, of, uh, of movies made, by, made by, by students, or you know, people on their own, and she detected a you know, rather strong anti-war message in these movies, that they often mm. uh, deal with a, you know, a lost or a fallen comrade, that they're not sort of rousing peons to liberty or states' rights. In fact, they're, they're much more personal stories. Uh, that way, um, so uh, you know, I think you're right that a lot of folks do come to history out of some sense of stirring passion or some sense of uh, of clear um, uh, meaning, but um, but I don't think that's where a lot of people are uh, these days. With this I, I, is that generational? I'm wondering because you do see a lot of people, and and a lot of them fit the sort of middle-aged white male stereotype who are interested in history. Uh, if you scratch very deeply, you discover that they they take great comfort in the lack, as they perceive it, of moral ambiguity. That this was, in the old days, right was right and wrong was wrong, and and uh, you knew which side you'd be on, and 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 that's it. And they take comfort in escaping into that uh, mythical past, rather as a way of escape from the the, the moral dilemmas of real life today. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that you, I think that you're right. I'm sure that there are, are people now, and there'll always be people uh, who come to come to it th- that that way. And in fact, I think that that you know that's not even necessarily a bad thing. I mean, that's sort of where um, you know how people get inspired or how uh, how they develop um, values that really do sort of carry them uh, forward into the future. They 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 derive them from the past. But I you know I also think that that. Uh, um, there too, you get sort of ambiguities. I mean, I think some people take refuge in the Civil War uh, in a funny kind of way. They, you know, they, they, they'll say that it's about heritage, or, or you know, without really specifying what what it's a heritage of. I mean, they 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 um, um, they don't particularly want to engage 
um, the, the, value, the, the, the values of the ideas are that people killed each other over. You see this a lot, I think, with the Civil War uh, reenactors who are really just interested in the sensory experience of, of what it's like to eat bad food and sleep in a tent. They don't particularly want to talk about the Compromise of 1850. They regard the Compromise of 1850 as entirely irrelevant uh, to what the Civil War was really about. Yeah, and they, you're absolutely right, they really don't want to talk about uh, issues like that. Uh, you can really alienate people uh, when you try to steer the conversation in that direction. Uh, and there were movies, I think, even like the, um, uh, you know, Gettysburg and the, 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 the sort of, the, 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 what I think of the rather poor adaptation of The Killer Angels that came out about ten years ago and was yeah. followed by a couple of sequels. Those movies, I think, are very much about, you know, again, that sensory thing. They don't particularly, they have to sort of deal with it, and they sort of, they sort of try to get over them as quickly as decently possible. Uh, and then you have, you have characters saying absurd things like, we should have freed, this, freed the slaves and then seceded, which is, you know, it makes no denial. sense. I mean, you know, yeah. but, but, but what those movies are really about are, you know, um, uh, Lee dividing his forces into five pieces of Chancellorsville and sort of making short work or, or of the collision of, of, of erstwhile friends at, you know, uh, at Devil's Ridge or whatever, or whatever, the, whatever the case may be. A few weeks ago, John Hennessy, the National Park Service, was was on the show here, and we were talking about the Park Service's uh, current initiative to address issues like uh, the causes of the war in their interpretation at at battlefields and the initial resistance they got, both within the Park Service and from from some of the Civil War-going public, uh, who only want to know when the 3rd Division arrived on the flank and not uh, to discuss why there was uh, a war in which the third division was necessary to, at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you do have that kind of conflict, absolutely. Yeah, and that, that's a real. I think that has been and continues to be a real fault line between um, his, uh, uh, you know, amateur historians and professional historians, or, or you know, or traditional you know, um, scholarly. Uh, uh, scholars of the Civil War and, and others. I mean, uh, you know, there's a new book out by a woman named Chandra Manning called "What This Cruel War Was Over," in which she looks at about a thousand letters of, of uh, Union and Confederate soldiers, and she makes the argument that you know slavery was really very central to, to, to these folks, really very central to the Confederates, really very central to the Confederates who did not own slaves, that their racial identities were bound up in not being black, and that that's what they wrote about, that's what they thought about, that's how they justified fighting this war. Now that's where the Academy is on this. Um, and I think that, that well, there's a lot of people outside the Academy who are just not there, and I think they both regard the other as, as incredibly thick-headed uh, on this. I mean, that's really, you know, go back to your, your, your introduction here. I mean, you know, we, there's a, the, the highbrow, lowbrow at this point is a canyon. You know, it's a, it's a divide. Um, and there doesn't seem to be any evidence that those lines are, are, um, are bridging. Well, that, that brings up a quote from your book. And I would say we had, uh, Chandra Manning was on the show uh, earlier this year, and I had not read it. I still have not read her book, uh, which I guess has just come out. Uh, but I, we talked very about articles. Very impressive piece of, uh, piece of research. I mean, really elegantly executed. It, it, well, her, her writing, I'd, I'd read her articles. I was very impressed. And, and she, she talked about, as you said, the, the causes of the war as she saw them from the sources. Um, uh, let me read this quote. We'll take a break, and you can come back and tell me uh, if you still believe it. Uh, in your introduction to your first book, you suggested that you had faith in bringing together the expert and the citizen in a mutually satisfactory way. 
Uh, a moment ago, you suggested there's a, a, a chasm uh, between the expert and the citizen. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to ask Jim Cullen uh, today what he thinks of Jim Cullen's view then. Uh, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. In this corner, the pointy-headed academic professors spouting off jargon-filled explanations of what the war is about. In that corner, slobbering yahoos in Confederate reenactor uniforms, uh, ignorant of causes and using words like heritage. Is there any solution to this argument over the meaning of the war? We'll ask Jim Cullen when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, talking today with Jim Cullen, author of The Civil War in Popular Culture, A Reusable Past. Uh, It's a fascinating book that looks at different ways uh, Americans remember the Civil War and assimilate uh, and acquire their understanding of of the past through means other than traditional uh, history books, through novels, through movies, uh, through songs, and so on. And when we left off, we were just discussing the uh, difficulty of uh, of bridging the gap between popular culture and academic writing, uh, where the academy today is comfortable discussing the causes of the war and assigning slavery a central, uh, the central position as the cause of the war. Uh, not all members of the public are comfortable with that. Civil War buffs often shy away from it. The students I have in class often, uh, at least one or two of them, fold their arms on their chest, their eyes glaze over. They don't want to hear about slavery because that's not how they learned it at home. Uh, is it possible to for for one group to communicate with the other? Does each have something valuable to say? Uh, well, I do think. Where, that where do we stand? I think we do have something valuable to say. I mean, um, you know, I, I'd sort of forgotten about that passage uh, uh, until you mentioned it. Um, and you know, I think the key word in in, in that sentence was faith. <laughs> you know, faith uh, is something that uh, you believe to be true in the in the, in the face of evidence. And uh, I was I was speaking on the basis of faith in 1995, and and. Uh, I think a dozen years later, I'd pretty much have to say the same thing that uh, I'd like to believe that it's possible. Although, if anything, I think that you know that, that lines have—I uh, don't know if they've gotten harder, but they certainly haven't haven't eased up much. Um, you, know, you have someone like Chandra Manning who is really doing cutting-edge um, academic scholarship, and I think she's sort of a million miles away from from uh, these these reenactors, uh, as far as far as I can tell. Well, but on, on the other hand, uh, her work does get published in North and South Magazine, which is not aimed at an academic audience. Uh, 
she was kind enough to be on this show, and, and mm-hmm. I think most of our listeners today are not affiliated with universities. Based on the email I get, most of them are people with a passionate interest in the war, but it is an, an avocation. It is not what they do for a living. Yeah, well, I, I actually, I, you know, I, I want to sort of uh, combine my response by saying I stand corrected and, and actually move move into what I was what I was what I was sort of hoping to get at, which is that yes. I do think that there are, there are some signs of sort of shifting plates in this regard. I think the most interesting and fraught examples of that. Uh, I mean, I think I'm encouraged to hear that that her work is is. Uh, is finding an audience uh, that that way, and of course the book is published by a trade publisher, and you know hopefully it's going to get a lot of attention. Um, but you know the whole sort of um, tortured efforts to apologize for slavery in places like Virginia and in Alabama, and sort of the discussion of reparations, which is a good deal less further along than the apology. In fact, in some ways, is designed to sort of forestall that that possibility. But I think that as the the sort of the demography of the country changes, um, and as as people sort of um, you know, get get sort of more comfortable with the legacy of the civil rights movement. That um, there will be that admission, and and I think we are. I think there is there is more and more popular discussion. You know, of of for example, the role of slavery in the North and the way in which American corporations, um, you know, benefited from slavery indirectly. You know, newspapers that ran advertisements for runaway slaves, banks that lent money to slaveholders, or you know, earned dividends based on uh, slave labor. So, there is a way in which some of this stuff is sort of seeping into popular consciousness. But I don't think it has really. Um, uh, emerged in the realm of popular culture in quite the same way. There's, we haven't had that movie, that song, uh, that novel that has somehow um, uh, dramatized, embodied this, 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 these sort of shifting sands. Um, I think that's that's a very good point. Um, just this morning, I, I was showing a Civil War class here on, on campus, uh, scenes from Birth of a Nation, the, mm-hmm. the 1915 film. Mm-hmm. And some of the students, uh, their jaws just drop open at the the pictures of the heroic Klansmen uh, and the evil uh, black characters in in that movie. That that was once a mainstream popular culture view. Mm-hmm. But and and as you say, nothing has come along uh, in, in contemporary culture to to present a more. Uh, uh, the, the kind of view that the the academy has been presenting for the last ten or fifteen years, but w- what encourages me is that the students watch this movie uh, and then discuss it afterwards, and there's not a huge amount of racial self consciousness in these discussions that I can detect. Mm-hmm. That 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 students are able to to some degree talk about slavery, talk about race, talk about the Civil War as history, um, not not. Uh, as so bound up with their own identities that that they cannot accept one side being right or wrong more than the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you well, see that among your students? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. I do see that, and I and I see some. You know, probably. I mean, I teach in the in, in the Northeast, and I teach you know students who many of whom are you know children figuratively of Ellis Island more than they are of uh, Plymouth Rock, so uh, or you know Jamestown for that matter. So they they may have a maybe a little less fraught than it is for say you teaching where where you do. Um, 
but I, I do think that, that that does happen, and I think it's important to keep in mind. I mean, um, uh, the, the textures here. I mean, you know, I, I too have shown Birth of a Nation, and I've sort of followed it up with Gone with the Wind, and in many ways, Gone with the Wind is not all that different from Birth of a Nation. No, it's not. And yet, in some ways, it, it, it surprisingly is. I mean, first of all, you have real African Americans playing African Americans rather than rather than you know uh, white folks with uh, with burnt cork on their faces. Right. A mammy is uh, is perhaps a racist character in some ways, but she's a three-dimensional human being in others. I mean, I don't want to go too far down this road, but I but I do think that you know, 25 years have passed, and there is a there is a detectable difference there. Um, you know, you look at a movie like Glory, you know, to jump way forward here. Right. And, uh, you know, that, that, of course, really grapples with the racial legacy of the Civil War, although many academic historians have sort of problems with that movie, uh, too. Um, the other thing that we see, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the new movies that are out, I mean, you know, a movie like Cold Mountain is kind of interesting in this regard because, uh, I, you know, I am among those that find the movie a little bit evasive in some sense. Of course, the character is from... Um, Western North Carolina. There's not a lot. There wasn't a lot of slavery in Western North Carolina. There's there, there's a way in which you can sort of sidestep the whole issue, um, and uh, and and sort of not really have to face um, the ra- racial questions that someone like Chandra Manning would say really you know are part of the story, whether or not you happen to see a black person uh, on, on Cold Mountain or not. Um, you know, I think there are some efforts to grapple with that in the film version of Cold Mountain. You do have uh, you know you do have an escaped uh, family of slaves who. I think meet an unfortunate end, and and so that consciousness sort of is there in the background. But um, uh, you know, I, I think that, that that young people today are willing to deal with the subject, but I think that they are um, unaware to the degree to which, as you're pointing out to them, that that the legacy here is is uh, pretty profoundly racist, and um, and that that history. Um, you know, isn't going away in some sense. It 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 uh, it um, is part of the record here, and um, and acknowledging that I think is an important first step to really understanding, um, you know, where we've been. Uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. Let me approach this from the other direction. This canyon, uh, as you point out, between the, the academic historians and, and popular culture. Uh, one of the subjects I also teach here is public history, and I worked in a museum for a number of years. And uh, there is, it seems, some movement in the academy to recognize that historians have to do more than write for one another. Uh, you obviously teaching in an in independent school are not cloistered uh, among uh, PhD holding colleagues all day, uh, treating you know visiting students three hours a week uh, as a, a job that must be done. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any hope for academic historians to do a better job communicating with the public? Well, you know, to a certain extent, the, 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 all I think academic historians are because the the, the 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 profession is changing, or the structure, or more more to the point, the economics of of academic publishing are changing. And um, you know, I think even small university presses just have less tolerance than they used to. For the classic sort of monographic dissertation, I mean, a lot of these presses now will publish, uh, you know, local travel books or even even uh, publish fiction. I mean, they they've got a they've got a bottom line. They're not getting as much support from the university. They have to sort of stand on their own, and therefore they're subject to commercial pressures. Now, in some sense, that's a bad thing, and we you know, and 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 people will lament that. In some sense, it's a good thing because it it means that historians are being forced to um, think a little more broadly about about the work that they do. 
Um, I, I also think that, you know, to be fair, that, that um, you know, there's, a lot, there's an awful lot of good academic historians out there who really do, you know, I mean, um, communicate in a very meaningful way, way, well outside, you know, some kind of ivory tower. I mean, you know, the James McPherson's of the world, for example, have, you know, really uh, done a, um, you know, a, a lifetime's work in, in terms of and, and succeeding on that basis and, and, and bridging and, and bridging cultures. Um, so I, I, don't, I think it's important not to sort of caricature uh, too much. I mean, someone like a Doris Kearns Goodwin, I think, is not an academic historian, but I think most most scholars would would agree that, notwithstanding her problems with plagiarism in the past, that her most recent book on Abraham Lincoln is a pretty impressive uh, piece of historiography. Um, so I, you know, I mean, the very the very existence of shows like this one, you know, testifies, I think, to uh, a good deal of vitality and ferment and just diversity. Uh, in the study of popular culture, and you know, I think that uh, we all benefit, even even when you know there's some inside baseball among the historians, or or, or when there's uh, you know a group of uh, uh, guys uh, you know doing the very traditional uh, reenacting thing, you know, uh, uh, sealing themselves off perhaps from from uh, the mainstream. Well, I think that that we're fortunate in in this particular historical field too, that the study of the Civil War, study of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, subjects like that will find a popular audience. If this were the uh, Industrial Revolution talk radio hour, we'd have a much smaller audience, uh, and, and we'd be talking about extremely, uh, much more narrowly focused books published by only by university presses. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think there, there, I think you come to the, uh, the the inherent drama, or dare I say, the romance of the Civil War, and the fact that, as, as Shelby Foote pointed out, you know, it's really the the crossroads of our being. You really can't get too far in trying to understand what it means to be an American without grappling with the Civil War, its legacy, in one form or another. Uh, that's absolutely true. What about this uh, collection of sources you and and your wife have, have published? Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, uh, it's uh, you know it's a uh, it's written for students um, and um, uh, it really it really did represent a kind of generational. Um, understanding on, on our part. I mean, the, the introduction of the book was the Civil War of the 21st Century, and the idea here was to try to bring together um, some of the more recent work and, and some of the more recent currents in American historiography. So uh, we were looking at, um, you know, more cultural history and social history than, than perhaps you might have seen in an earlier generation. And, you know, along the lines we were talking about earlier, a lot of history that sort of straddles this um, this uh, and scrambles this notion of north and south. So, for example, we have uh, a piece by actually another uh, a lawyer, a um, uh, guy named Eric Dean, who wrote a book called Shook Over Hell, in which he compares the experience of post-traumatic stress syndrome on Vietnam vets with what would have would have been diagnosed as such, perhaps uh, among among Civil War soldiers. And there, you know, you really are transcending north and south, but you're also bringing to bear some of the more recent um, psychiatric literature. Sort of on the subject, so we were trying to sort of you know include old uh, classics, whether those old classics are defined as uh, Bruce Catton's work on the Civil War, which of course enchanted so many people uh, for generations, or whether you define classic as a speech by John Calhoun, you know, along with you know the work of people like McPherson um, and others who um, you know have sort of defined the last quarter century of, of Civil War scholarship. So you have both primary and secondary sources in this That's right. reader. Yeah. Yeah, it, it sounds like uh, definitely a tool I'll have to explore before the next uh, next semester rolls around. And see if it's something to assign. 
because it's always challenging, uh, as I'm sure you know, to teach a Civil War class and try to, uh, in, in, in 40 meetings, tell the whole story or, or more accurately tell uh, the most significant story of the infinite number of stories available. Uh, it's hard to do, hard to fit it yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, it, it involves making a series of tough choices, like like writing history generally, I guess. It does, and uh, just as there's not enough time in the semester to say everything we want, uh, we have once again already reached the hour of our end here uh, at Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, but it has been, uh, I found, a fascinating hour talking today with Jim Cullen, author of The Civil War in Popular Culture, A Reusable Past. And what's the name of the, the new volume? The new book is called Imperfect Presidents, Tales yeah. of Misadventure and Triumph. So Imperfect Presidents, you may want to look at that, too. If you enjoy the first book, you'll enjoy this one, too, I'm sure. Jim, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you very much, Terry. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.